Hi, I'm Dale Sherbeck, and welcome to the HQ, a CHA Learning and Healthcare Can podcast serial where we dive into healthcare issues and topics from the perspective of its people and discuss them with those that are leading in the health system. Together, we'll try to unpack these topics and learn what actions are being taken to innovatively solve them today. A happy new year and a huge welcome to our listeners as we begin our second season on the HQ. The year is now 2023, and while much has changed in a year, unfortunately, some things in healthcare have not, and some have simply gotten worse. At the top of this list surely must be the plight of our long-serving and enduring healthcare workers whose psychosocial wellness continues to be strained and stressed as demands on the health system continue to overwhelm a depleted workforce. Our own research at Healthcare Can, through a survey of all our members, shows that vacancy rates in healthcare have continued a steep rise since 2019 and currently sit at the highest levels since all this began. At least as worrying, if not more so, is that overtime rates across the country continue to follow the same trend to meet the continued demand in services that is not waning and which is rising in the wake of new issues like RSV. So with few other solutions within reach, organizations are asking more of our current staff as a necessary strategy in bridging this HR gap. Something clearly has to give, and tragically, that seems to be the capacity for the psychological self-care and wellness of our workforce, which is also contributing to the moral distress of many healthcare workers. To put this in further context, and to tee up our conversation today, let me read to you a quote from the report published at the end of 2022 by the Mental Health Commission of Canada, which which was produced on the basis of research conducted in collaboration with the Centre for Studies in Primary Care at the Department of Family Medicine at Queen's University and HEC Montreal's Healthcare Management Hub. The quote goes, Psychological health and safety in the workplace is directly tied to our well-being. It is integral to our capacity to be effective, to feel significant, and to find meaning in our work. Those in healthcare face many challenges to being well at work, challenges that have increased exponentially during the COVID-19 pandemic. In this light, Canada's healthcare leaders and policymakers have an ethical responsibility to support healthcare workers in the psychological self-care and protect them from moral distress. Both of these are topics that came up in the HQ last year and I know remain top of mind for many healthcare workers, healthcare leaders, and people leaders alike. So I was thrilled to make this research the subject of this podcast. To discuss it, I'm excited to have two key members of this report join me today to talk about it and answer more questions. First, we have Maddie Sutton, a nurse who graduated from Dalhousie Nursing School in 2019 which means she entered the health workforce just before the pandemic began and has experienced the numerous policy changes and has first-hand experience struggling through the staffing shortages of the pandemic. She began at Camp Hill Veterans Memorial, a long-term care facility for veterans. She then went on to work for 4.1 Halifax Infirmary Vascular and General Surgery. Maddie now works at the Medial Day Unit in Victoria General in Halifax, a facility that provides treatments such as blood product transfusions, IV antibiotics, iron infusions, and various types of chemotherapy. And secondly, we are joined by Dr. Colleen Grady, a researcher focused on physician leadership development, psychological health and safety in the workplace, and functional healthcare organizations. Colleen is the principal investigator on this report, which we put a link to in our show notes. 
Dr. Grady holds a master and doctoral degrees in business administration and her current work supports the postgraduate program in the Department of Family Medicine, the evaluation of Ontario health teams, Indigenous health, and the collaboration amongst family physicians to inform system integration. Hi, Maddie and Colleen, and welcome to the HQ. Hi there. <laughs> Hi there to you both. Uh, I know we're in different places, so we may have to interrupt each other as we as we flow through the conversation here. But thank you for joining us today to discuss this report and better understand what is happening to our healthcare professionals like yourself, Maddie. Perhaps we can start the conversation with a view of what is happening. As a person who is living this, what does this look like for those who are listening who perhaps haven't seen or lived it themselves? Hi there, Dale. Uh, I'd like to start off just by saying thank you for having us. This is a really important topic, especially for those who are living with it every day by going to work or those who are actually in hospital. But uh, we're really excited to be a part of this and be able to share the information we have. I can't lie, even at the best of times, working as a healthcare worker isn't an easy job. But with the start of COVID, things have definitely changed. And They've changed in multiple ways, but the two biggest ways which change is the demands on nurses have changed, the demand on healthcare workers has changed. Uh, every week we've been having to change the way we do our work because we're getting new information on what the best protocols are to give the best possible care. And that's great. We want to be giving the most informed care, the best care that we can, but having to change the way we do things and learn uh, new things every day is difficult to do. Uh, and another thing that's really made things difficult for us is just we're not only doing the same job, but a more difficult job with fewer people than we originally had. Mm-hmm. With COVID, we've had a lot of uh, healthcare workers have to leave because of their health, uh, either because they themselves received COVID or because they didn't have um, the immune system that would be able to fight it off. So for their health, they couldn't be around people with a high risk of getting infected. We've also had a lot of people, uh, just because the work standards of work have become harder, uh, leaving the profession just because they can't handle it anymore. Uh, because the ways that we've had to work have uh, started to take such a toll that even though we love our work, uh, going into it, just we can't keep up. Uh, that has become a problem because although I think it's good that people are taking the time that they need for their health, uh, their physical health and their mental well-being, that's also leaving healthcare workers behind and not bringing in new healthcare workers to be able to pick up the demand. So like I said before, we're doing not only a more difficult job, but more difficult job with fewer people. And that demand is just draining us and draining us. Yeah, it's, I wouldn't say the cliche around a perfect storm, but because there's nothing perfect about what you're experiencing, but it is a recipe for, you know, a a lot of, I I would assume, you know, challenges in terms of how do you cope with what's happening um, with all those um, competing uh, changes and that are stressors themselves, along with all the other demands and and then not having as many people there to support you. Um, through this. So, Colleen, um, if I were to change the conversation then back to you, can you perhaps define for us then what do we mean by moral distress that we sort of referred to at the beginning of this uh, introduction and how it's impacting these people who are working with it and the Canadian system that that we all rely upon? 
Certainly. Um, thanks, Dale. And um, I agree with Maddie. I, I want to also express appreciation for having this conversation. I think that the big part, um, the most important piece of the work that we've done is um, that it, it allows these conversations. And I think continuing to uh, allow for con conversations around mental health is so important. Mm -hmm. So moral distress really is um, when you're uh, placed into a situation where your sense of integrity and in your profession is compromised by obstacles that are perhaps beyond your control. And so that causes distress in that you can't uh, respond according to your profession, your professional knowledge, your principles, uh, in the way that you feel you should or you know you should for, um, for many reasons. So it's a, it's a real lack of autonomy. And um, one thing I heard uh, Maddie say a couple of times is, you know, that she loves her job. And mm -hmm. I would say that in healthcare workers that do love their job, they're there for all the right reasons, um, but making difficult choices, even more so during COVID um, has caused um, an exponential amount of moral distress. So how does it impact people? Well, it certainly, obviously it, it, um, uh, it, it results in frustration, anger, um, and sometimes resentment at the organization you work in, at the situation, potentially at the patients. Um, it leads people to think about changing careers, make them feel uh, less valuable. What, what's the point of my knowledge? You know, should I be in this profession? And that's where um, um, staff shortages are happening. That's where people are exiting. I think both you and Maddie both spoke to that. And, mm -hmm. and that's, that's the case. So the higher the moral distress, the less confidence in the quality of care that you're providing because you're, you're being tugged in all directions and you're not feeling that you're able to, at least that's what we we're hearing from healthcare workers, not able to give the type of care that you would normally choose to or that you feel that is, uh, um, uh, is needed at that time. So there's a kind of a, a feeling, I guess, of being ineffective or paralyzed in terms of being able to sort of follow through on what you want to do that the system itself is in the way or is there something else that sort of is impeding I guess that in terms of what's going on inside these healthcare workers sort of um, in their minds well yes and I think I think I, I did pull out a quote from the report around moral distress um, in the fact that uh, this one person had said, it's a byproduct of the work that we do. It's the cost of caring and working in healthcare. So moral distress mm -hmm. is not, uh, you know, we, we cannot uh, avoid it in healthcare because they're, they're, um, these are really challenging and difficult situations that healthcare workers find themselves in. The challenge um, with the pandemic, which sort of heightened everything, made the, the demands, the situations, um, uh, more difficult due to all the confounding factors, like the shortage of PPE, like the high death rate, like the fact that, and um, it was a fast-moving virus we were dealing with, without it, with with many unknowns, so um, lots of challenging times um, and challenging decisions that were novel and uh, there wasn't any precedent for. Um, and things had to happen really fast. So I think it's sort of a, 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 a the complexity of factors that are playing into it that has just made the moral distress um, a much higher level than it was pre-pandemic, I would say. Yeah, <clears throat> that was gonna be my follow-up question in terms of what has changed. Cause I mean, 
I mean, I think even to the most unsuspecting of, of Canadians or, or consumers of the health system, right, we would assume that being a healthcare worker or a first responder is a very difficult, stressful job, um, um, even before the pandemic. So does that resonate with you as well, Maddie, in terms of what uh, Colleen was sharing? Yes, um, I do agree with what Colleen was saying. And just kind of go back to what she was saying. Uh, as a healthcare worker, you're always going to have some level of moral distress, but it's really changed recently because, yes, it is hard to uh, see something distressing and not be able to do anything about it. But one thing that is even hits home even more and just kind of starts to break you down is when you know something can be done but because of the lack of resources, you are not capable to do it. So you know that if I gave took time to be able to do this with the patient, or I was able to provide this equipment to make sure that uh, this uh, illness wasn't spread as quickly, then we would be able to have better outcomes. It's so much more frustrating when we know what the solutions could be, but just lack the resources. and that resources, like you mentioned, Colleen, can be things like uh, PPE, medications, uh, but it also can just be the amount of time and energy you have as a healthcare worker. As a healthcare worker, there were times that I would have patients tell me things that they were going through such difficult times and they just needed someone to talk to and they just needed someone to listen for just a moment and I had to tell them, look, this is so important. I'm so excited and happy that you are telling me because you do really need someone to talk about. But if I don't go give this potassium in five minutes, then someone could have a cardiac event. And then after that, there's something else that I need to run off to and something else I need to run off to. And it's just especially frustrating because healthcare workers, if you're in this profession, you're not just in it for no reason you're in it because you truly want to be able to make change because you've gone through something and understand how much of an impact you can have and so because the healthcare workers have that passion uh, just not being able to give the care that you know a patient deserves even when you want to it just it breaks your heart and sometimes you go home at the end of the day and you're just frustrated as why couldn't I do more? Yeah, and I think it, it certainly is consistent with some you know conversations I've had on other episodes of the HQ over the last year, um, where people have talked about their colleagues or themselves um, just having breaks where suddenly it, it just all came home. Um, and I guess you know, were people who've, you know, traditionally been very stoic in their professions to suddenly found themselves sobbing, right, in by themselves or even in a meeting. So I guess what I would also wonder in terms of what you're describing or both of you are describing is the duration of the event. So it's not just a crisis in a moment. It's been something that's been going on for years. So has, has things changed in terms of how, I guess, that moral distress finds itself, I guess, developing or how you would yourself feel it, Maddie, you know, now almost three years into the pandemic versus the way this thing was starting, you know, at the beginning of it back in 2020. 
Uh, some things have changed and some things haven't. Like um, now with uh, COVID, we kind of know what we're up against. We know the protocols. Uh, having that certainty of what steps we should take and not having to look things up and things changing every day, that definitely does make things a lot easier and uh, allows us to be more confident in the care we're providing. But uh, it still is very distressing because we had a lot of people leave due to COVID. Uh, so we still are very short on staff. Mm -hmm. And because of that, we've still been working through. And I believe most healthcare workers haven't had a chance to kind of just take a breath. So all of that stress that uh, we went through with COVID, it's, it's still building because we still have so many healthcare workers who are overworked and not being able to get breaks and not being able to get days off. But you just haven't had that chance to kind of sit down, take a breath and kind of absorb what happened, what is still happening and how that's affecting us. So one of the, I guess the other buzzwords over the last few years that we've heard a lot more about is the need for resilience in all of this, in the space of all the challenges that we're all facing um, and certainly in healthcare, that's certainly important as well. So. How does resilience in terms of the research or what you're experiencing yourself, Maddie, um, resonate in terms of today versus before? I mean, are people more resilient or less resilient? Is the system itself less resilient than it was before the pandemic started? Um, and how do coping strategies is another topic that we've talked about. How does that change um, as we keep moving through this? I think honestly, um, we've, we have been forced to be resilient through this because at the end of the day, we, we know that there are patients and families waiting for us. So we can't just call in. We know we have to go back to work. Uh, and so we're always, we're always forced to have that resiliency. But if anything, I think our resiliency has decreased because it's for, for the everyday person, I'm assuming you can relate when you wake up on a Monday morning and you've had all weekend to rest, uh, and a problem comes along, it's a little bit easier to deal with because you're in the state of mind where you're a little bit calmer, you can uh, face the problem. But if it's Friday and it's just been a week of hell and there's been so many things going on, uh, you're just kind of running on empty already. And it's hard to find that energy, that mindset to just be able to complete what you need to do. So if anything, I'd say we are still getting the job done, but uh, only because it's necessary, not because uh, we're in the mindset or the physical set to be able to, to do it. Any comments from you, Colleen, on that? Well, I, I definitely concur with everything that Maddie said. Um, I think that um, at least what I know from our research is Honestly, there isn't anyone uh, more resilient than, than people that work in healthcare, and um, and they're there for all the right reasons, um, dedicated, caring, compassionate human beings. It's definitely not for the faint of heart, but but humans need time to bounce back. We, we all need time to recover. So Maddie's example of even a weekend um, that we would, you know, I certainly get weekends. Um, and to be able to readjust and 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 recover, um, is 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 necessary, and that hasn't happened in healthcare. Um, mm -hmm. So there's there's the 
monumental um, uh, stress that's been never ending for what, going on three years now. Um, there's the massive uncertainty. Now, as Maddie said, things are starting to stabilize a bit more in terms of protocols and things like that. So, you know, so having that somewhat of a control and knowing what it was, but in the beginning, it wasn't that things were changing every day. Um, and, you know, and not being able to take vacation or taking time off over the last couple of years, unless, you know, or without being feeling made to feel guilty about that, has just been staggering. So, um, so I think past coping strategies, um, the stakes are much higher now and mm -hmm. everyone has their limitations. So, you know, I always think back to somebody that uh, I think a psychologist told me when you stretch an elastic band too far for too long, it does eventually break. And uh, it, we all do. And I just think that healthcare workers um, have not had that time to bounce back, to rebound, to readjust, to rest. And, um, and coupled with the fact that there's not enough people in the workforce. So even taking time off is not, um, is, is not feasible for many. So it, it's an ongoing challenge. So I, I think the strategies, we're in a whole different world now, I think. Yeah, you're gonna say something, Maddie? If I could add to that, just um, I want to say that when we're talking about these breaks and these ability to reset, uh, we're not really talking about like a week long vacation or anything like that, because mm -hmm. right now where I'm working at, I'm lucky enough that I am able to get my lunch breaks. Um, I am able to uh, take my vacation because it just happens I work at a place that is well staffed enough for this. Mm -hmm. But most places like floor nursing or especially, especially emergency rooms right now, I have friends who go through the day without being able to eat, without being able to take a chance to take a glass of water. Uh, if they need to use the washroom, it's like running there, running back. Uh, and these are people who are working 12 hour shifts and working far more than uh, four or five days a week. Um, and they have not, even though it's in our contract that we are allotted a certain amount of vacation time, the unit just hasn't been able to allow that because they just don't have enough staff. Mm -hmm. So it's, we're not talking about like, uh, these, this time off where you can sit and relax and just really take a breath. That would be lovely. But at this point, we need to at least start with being able to just take a breath to eat, to drink, to do what your body every human body needs it's it's just crazy that at this point not even that is possible yeah i think as both of you are describing this i'm you know i'm taking this sort of imagery from nature and uh right and looking at you know the impact that storms and winds and we've had some of those here in ottawa over last year um you know that bent and broke our trees um and the you know the you look at nature and you see trees that are bent and the, you see those that are broken right and then you see trees that are standing straight up right i guess if i'm sort of taking the the descriptions about resilience that resilience would be those trees that have been blown but stand straight back up again those that have been broken right are clearly not resilient but those that remain bent um that didn't fall but continue to sort of survive but not the way they were before it seems a lot of what some of what we might be describing here as well and is that resilience or is that somehow tolerance or something else or adaptation or 
Is it? Well, sorry, Dale. One nope. thing that I wanted to add to that is just I I agree that resilience is a good thing, but I don't think we should uh, say, oh, it's so great that healthcare workers are resilient. They've dealt with so much and they just keep going and then that becoming normalized. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that we need to understand that, yes, it's possible for healthcare workers to be resilient, but only for so long. And just because they are able to uh, continue their work doesn't mean they're doing it in the best possible way. And we definitely, even though people are able to get into work, if we really want them to be doing their best work, we need to make some real changes. Yeah, I, I think there there are limits, right, to how far you can bend something or to or stretch something to your calling to your point, Colleen, about the elastic band, right, without it having lasting impacts. Exactly, and and if I could just add to what Maddie said, um, because I think that's a great point. Um, and to be quite honest with you, DL, I uh, the word resilience always sort of gets my back up a little bit, and the reason it does is it's it's um, it continues to place it blames the victim. And mm-hmm. that, that often does happen um, in that, um, as I say, you know, healthcare workers are already resilient to begin with. But if we're looking at it that way, then we're taking the onus or the responsibility away from um, uh, the organization that they work in, the healthcare system that they work in, all the other pieces. Uh, you know, none of us want to go to a place where we work, a place of work that, that um, uh, wears us down in such a way. So I think, um, you know, shifting the dialogue away from resistance also shifts the blame away from, you know, healthcare workers that have been told repeatedly, well, you need to be, or, you know, even resiliency training and things like that. Like, I think, you know, there's a, there's a a value for self-care and learning practices that are, you know, um, uh, looking after your oneself. But I think if it, takes the onus away from the organization or the system to do better or do differently, then that doesn't serve anyone. Yeah, thank you, Colleen, because I, I too was having a hard time with the resilience aspect of this, because this seems like a much more extreme example where resilience doesn't, I think, really pay homage or respect, I think, to what's really being faced by people like yourself, Maddie. So um, by most definitions, then, I mean, working in healthcare, I think, as you've been describing yourselves, right, is a is a calling, right? It's a vocation. You want to be there. You want to do good. Um, uh, and that I think, as you've been describing, Colleen, that the, the right, there's that the moral distress then um, that comes with not being able to follow through, I guess, on what called you into the professions to begin with. So what does that look like more broadly speaking um, when you know when people are not able to I guess fulfill their vocation their calling to do what what brought them into the professions uh, originally well I think certainly it'll it'll um, it is we are seeing manifestation of people leaving the profession choosing to work elsewhere taking their um, their knowledge and their skills and doing, uh, working in a different type of organization, um, choosing to leave healthcare overall or just to switch organizations that they work for, uh, which is obviously going to have a detrimental effect and, and is currently having a detrimental effect on 
uh, many areas within healthcare. And um, it, it's not all down to um, uh, moral distress. It's not all down to the pandemic, but we have crises in primary care with uh, family physicians, um, a lack of uh, family physicians across Canada. We have overcrowded uh, emergency departments uh, that are that are really scrambling, which is all part and parcel. We have, um, uh, as Maddie says, within, within units, people that aren't able to take breaks, um, e even just, you know, those that would be within the normal working day um, because of short staff. So I think that that's a huge piece. And then of course that rolls up into problems within the system and um, which are only going to get bigger and bigger, um, you know, because it's a snow, there's a snowball effect. So yeah, I guess to extend that a little bit further then, so how does it show up at work if people are in situations of moral distress? And so yes, some leave the profession, um, others don't, but that doesn't change the fact that they're feeling those same aspects. So how does that show up, I guess, at work? Maybe, maybe you can answer that, Maddie, or maybe it does come back through your research, Colleen. Yeah, um, I think uh, for the people who do uh, decide to change or stay, it's going to start impacting their quality of care, the care that they're giving and how effectively they can give it. Um, one thing that I find kind of funny is that when I'm watching a movie or a TV show and I see a healthcare worker who's uh, not providing the best care or who's like a little bit cold or just usually the healthcare worker we don't like in the story. I'm never like, oh, that person is awful. Like I hate them. One of the first questions that comes to mind is, I'm sure that they started out different. I wonder what it was during their, uh, during their experience that changed them this way, mm -hmm. that brought them to this point. Because uh, usually the reason why people are so guarded in healthcare isn't because they don't care about the outcomes. It's because they are trying to protect themselves in a way mm -hmm. by um, not becoming so emotionally over invested like we do. And it's, it's really impacting, like I was saying before, not only the way we uh, interact with patients just uh, by treating them as a person and with respect and all that kind of thing, but also going to be impacting the actual care we give as in the treatment and the medications, because if we are so short staffed that we are doing treating 10 different patients at a time, uh, we are not fully focused on the job we are doing. And I think for any profession, you can say that if you are not able to fully focus on what you're doing, then you're not, mistakes are gonna arise, things are gonna happen. And it's not because we aren't well trained. It's not because we don't know uh, what we should be doing. It's because if you get to the point where you are so uh, spread thin that you have so many things to do and you don't have that calm mindset, then things are going to go awry. And that's why I think that this is such an important issue because in the end, this isn't just a healthcare issue. 
this is an issue for anyone with help, anyone who is going to go into a clinic, anyone who is going to go into hospital, anyone who is going to see a healthcare professional. If they want the best and most effective care, as we all do, if they want the best outcomes, then they need the best healthcare workers. And right now, we have amazing healthcare workers, but we're not giving them the environment to give their best care. And so it's really important, not just to healthcare workers, but to everyone, that we're able to give healthcare workers the best possibility to give that best care. Thank you, Maddie. I think that's very well said. And it's, um, I mean, it is a system, right? And you remove one part of that system or you make it impossible for that part to contribute, then it does sort of break the whole uh, ecosystem, I guess, from its capacity of being what it's supposed to be. Were you going to add something to that, Colleen? I think she summed it up really well. I, you know, I mean, I would just think um, when you said what what does that look like? Um, I think people do become despondent. They become disillusioned with their, with the work they're doing. They, you know, it's, it has to impact the quality of care. And I think she hit the nail on the head with the fact that we're all patients uh, in the healthcare system uh, and we all need to recognize the value of having healthy healthcare providers, healthcare workers, um, at the time when we're the most vulnerable, when we need it. Um, I don't think anyone can dispute how important that is. So I think she, she, Maddie phrased it, summed it up really well. Yeah, I agree. We can't keep pouring from an empty cup. And just as time goes on, our own cup is just getting less and less full. And eventually it's going to become empty and we're not going to be able to pour anything else out for others. Yeah. And Canadians should think and care about that deeply, um, right? Because it's not, I mean, it's certainly want to care for our healthcare professionals that are caring for us. But, um, but yes, I think once that well is dry, then I think we are all in a, um, a world of, of problems, to say the least. Um, so Colleen, we've talked a lot about moral distress, obviously an important topic here, um, and what's happening and why. So what does your research and, and the report you, you've uh, produced here suggest that can be done to turn things around? Well, um, first and foremost, um, we, need, we need to keep the conversation going. So we do know that moral distress is part of working in healthcare, but what we can do is build in supports to diminish the impact on healthcare workers. Um, so some of the things that we found, so we looked at it at the um, team level and the organizational level, things like, um, <clears throat> excuse me, debriefing sessions. So sessions where um, people had a chance to be able to talk about distressing events um, that were um, uh, supported by policy. So they happened on a regular basis. It wasn't just a hit or miss um, opportunity. Developing team leaders that are um, that that you know are are, are looking for signals um, and can read signals and identify distressing situations in, among the team, and they can offer support to the team leaders. And you know this means like not every leader um, is necessarily equipped to be able to support a team. So yeah. definitely investing in in leaders that um, leadership development, I think, is really important. We also heard that um, from an organizational perspective, um, protected funding 
So funding, and in some organizations, it was happening, um, but obviously those were few and far between, but protected funding for things like um, an ethicist who, that you can consult with, mm -hmm. spiritual counseling, if that was needed, um, wellness coaches, the uh, peer support programs. So these things are happening in some places. And, um, you know, it, Maddie pointed out, you know, where she works is different than where her colleagues are working, and it's a very different environment. So, um, so there are some things that are happening, but these should be happening, or they should be um, prioritized within organizations. Some of the other things that we found that I think could make a difference is um, actions at both levels. So not just at the team level, but also at the organizational level, because you could have a great team leader. You could have a really good team that's very supportive and you have the opportunity to decompress after uh, distressing events. But if the organization doesn't support it in terms of policies, then that team leader leaves and that support leaves. So it's hard to sustain it at a team level. So mm -hmm. the organization, um, if it doesn't have an ethical climate to it, in other words, it, it, it doesn't prioritize wellness, it doesn't have policies, it doesn't have um, expectations, around um, things like debriefs happening on a regular basis, it contradicts this. And so then it doesn't happen and it happens in some places and it doesn't happen in others. And, and then people, people move on. Um, I think the other thing is, um, yeah, I, it, sorry, I guess just funding. I think that was something we certainly heard a lot about in terms of advocating for mental wellness um, in all healthcare organizations. And so if funding can be identified, even on a smaller basis, that it not be one time or it be temporary, or it can be borrowed to, to go somewhere else if not needed. So it's a priority, this funding budget line is a priority to be able to um, address it, I think goes a really long way for anyone working in an organization that feels that your organization has has your back and you've, you can feel somewhat confident that you're working in a place that um, feels more like you belong and you, you have some support there. Yeah, I think what I'm, I guess part of what I'm hearing from you, Colleen, is that I mean, you're talking about investments and or developing a culture, I guess, that supports this. So that I think, as you said, if a leader or somebody leaves, it doesn't just stop because that person's gone. It survives that the, any one individual. Um, and you're also talking about, um, I guess, in investments in, in the culture and in the workplace itself, which um, I don't know if I would be accurate in saying, but that these things aren't fluff, um, that they're really important to the integrity and the health of an organization itself. Um, and I think we probably have seen for decades, right, stripping away these kinds of things from organizations in our publicly funded system as being, you know, not important to patient care, not important to outcomes. But um, and so we're talking about making further investments or bringing them back or or creating a, a healthy work space, I guess, that supports our healthcare workers. Is that what I'm would, would I be fair to say that? I think that's perfectly fair. And I th I like your term fluff, because uh, I agree, I think, um, often in the past, mental health supports, if they existed in a workplace, they were sort of a nice to have, 
Um, but I think we, we're way beyond that now because our wellness at, in the workplace, regardless of where it is, um, but especially in a place like healthcare, in a sector like healthcare, where you're caring for others, you're coming against uh, distressing situations, you're coping with um, so many uh, events and um, the nuances of what happens in the workplace are so different from anything that I experience at least that I think it absolutely has to be a priority because it is connected to the ability for your ability to provide good care, to be able to do your work well, to feel, you know, that you're, uh, feel confident in your, in your knowledge and, 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 uh, and certainly feel good about the, what you've done at the end of the day. So it's not fluff. Absolutely. No, it's a, it's a stressful environment. I think is what you've been describing. You're going to say something, Maddie? Yeah, um, two things. Just firstly, on uh, just kind of more of a team level, like Colleen was talking about, just this culture of that team. Having worked in uh, different places, I've seen kind of different ways that the team can look at people having to call in sick or take time for themselves, either whether it be physical or mental. And just the way that that is treated can make such a difference. Um, like we were talking about, it's, it's not possible to be consistent, resilient, unless you have time to uh, take to yourself to become better. And for people who maybe need to take a day off, or for those people who are just working continuously and told they have to come in and just say, no, I'm not taking this overtime shift. Uh, there are some cultures where that is seen as that person is a problem now. They are making our life more difficult because they uh, are not coming into work. And so now we're gonna need to find someone else to come in and they're a big issue. And uh, this is a really bad thing. And it's seen as that person being the problem when really it's, it's our whole situation that's the problem. And that is very stressful as a healthcare provider. Um, I can tell you that there were days where I was sick uh, and could not go into work. And I just spent the day in bed, just feeling terrible, being like, there are people I know at work who their day is going to be harder because uh, I called them sick and they're short. And I just felt so guilty and so terrible. And that culture just kind of fed into that. Uh, I am lucky to say that I'm now working in a place that has a very different culture where it is seen as if you are not well then you cannot provide the best care and until you are feeling better yourself and until you feel that you can provide good care then you need to take that time and it's just so different because yes you do still feel that guilt I'm not going to deny it for not going in but you don't feel that judgment and you are able to get better faster because you're not stretching yourself out so thin and you feel supported by the people that uh, you are working with. So when you do go in, you feel more able to do what you need to and you feel able to go in more often because you know that the people there are going to support you. Yeah, it, I think it, it's also very powerful as you described that, Maddie, and both in terms of what you're feeling um, and your, you know, your your devotion, I guess, to your team as well. But understanding, I guess, the the connection between that and your ability to 
I guess, perform your, your job and, and lead to the outcomes that, you know, patients and families are expecting. I guess one of the things, though, that I, I reflect on in terms of your your collective advice, in terms of what can be done to fix the problem is you've, you've identified teams and organizational investments. You haven't mentioned the individual in this. Um, and I'm not, I'm not debating that, but I'm just interested that you didn't focus on that. So do you have a comment on that, Colleen? Well, certainly we did ask um, those that um, in our, in our, study, which we had over, uh, we had over a 1000 respondents uh, from all across Canada. And we did ask in terms of um, what, how do you practice self care? What are the pieces that um, sort of the, um, the actions that you take? And so we did hear a lot of things about that. And, and I mean, nothing is surprising, mm-hmm. um, taking time in nature, eating well, meditation, um, self awareness, self care, taking time to reflect. So we, we certainly did hear all of those things um, when they had time to do that, when they were able to do that and um, sort of, you know, checking out of the workplace um, mentally, even if it was on a break, sort of just sort of, you know, um, uh, distancing yourself um, mentally from it. But, you know, I also heard about things like mandatory recall, mandatory overtime, inability to take breaks uh, in long-term care, particularly hard uh, and not even places to take a break. So, you know, the individual, um, the individual's ability to perform self-care became more and more compromised because there wasn't the time during the day there, there wasn't necessarily the time off um, where you weren't feeling guilty and able to sort of go for a walk in the woods and do those type of things. But absolutely, there are a lot of things that people um, shared with us that were very healthy practices that I think um, uh, bodes well for them and, and continues to. If I can add to that, just um, what I will say is if healthcare professionals are able to, they will be performing self-care. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, it's just uh, in a lot of places right now in the healthcare system, it is just not possible to because you're just constantly working. And that's why I think a lot of this falls on more of the systemic area is because I think we've talked about so many issues today. Uh, But I think the main thing that could cause or create the biggest difference to me, at least, is if we had more time, both at work for breaks, uh, at work while working, having time to be able to provide the care we know is the best care, having time off of work. Right now, we do not have the time we need as healthcare workers, both in and out of work. What we need is more healthcare providers so that at work, patients can be uh, split up into smaller groupings for each nurse so that we have the time to provide the best care. Also, so that the people who aren't working or also so that the people who uh, are working can have time off for vacation, for weekends, who aren't being called in on overtime constantly. And if we are able to have that time by having these more healthcare providers, then we are able to fix a lot of these problems. And I think that just what we really need is um, our organization to 
hopefully find a bit more money if they can to be able to hire more healthcare professionals in the needed areas and also to be trying to get more young people into the healthcare industry and bringing them in in a way that uh, they feel they're well integrated into it. Yeah, I think well, part of what I'm also hearing is that it's not enough to make individuals accountable for their own health if the system itself doesn't support them in that. Um, and so um, I think as you're saying, Maddie, you, um, and as, as you said, I think, Colleen, in terms of some of your, your respondents, right, many healthcare professionals know how to take care of themselves, but if the system doesn't give them the space and time and the resources to do so, then that becomes, uh, you know, uh, an impossible sort of scenario. Um, and so I think if I'm hearing right, there's a lot of focus in the report on the team and the organizational changes that are necessary because of that. Yes, I, I definitely agree on that. And I agree as well that it goes even beyond the team and the organization to the system itself. So there's this is at a multiple level and I don't think there's any one level that change can be made and then we're fine. I mean, mm -hmm. this needs to be a very multifaceted um, approach to making change. And um, it's feasible. Um, it's it's doable. Uh, there are practical strategies in place. As I said, in many organizations, they're doing some really stellar work uh, and focusing on mental health. So it's not that that things aren't happening, but they're not happening on a grand enough scale. And in, in terms of... Um, uh, the system, absolutely, um, you know, enticing or or encouraging, inviting, welcoming new healthcare workers um, is one thing, but let's let's give them a place to work that they want to stay in, and yeah. them is is just as important, or if not more so, because it it uh, if they just come in and find it's uh, too overwhelming and uh, it's not a place they want to work, then we haven't done ourselves any favors. No, it becomes a an um, an unending sort of infinity loop, right? I think as one of our you know healthcare members has described, right? They hire three thousand uh, healthcare workers a year, and they lose three thousand healthcare workers a year, right? So, um, and that's their cycle. And I think you know that has to obviously stop um, if we're going to resolve some of these things. And and I think as you're describing, calling creating a safe um accommodating space that is inclusive right and, and and well fundamentally safe for all um is certainly an important objective so you know we've been talking around it and and you, certainly when we talk about systems i think we're probably implicitly talking about issues around policy and i'm um I'm not going to want to put either of you on the spot. I know that you have your own vested interests, and um, and your voices have uh, have you know you're connected to other uh, organizations. So, you know, only commenting, I guess, and, and as much as you feel comfortable, um, if you were to provide that, you know, given that magic wand, or you you were in a position of authority, what are the policy changes that you would be advocating for that need to happen to resolve some of what we've been talking about here today? I don't know who wants to go first. Um, I'd say, honestly, we, we I don't know what changes I'd make to policy at this point. What I'd change right now is our system's ability to actually um, do what they have promised. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I know, like I mentioned earlier, uh, we have in our contracts as nurses that we should work this often. We get these many days off. We get this time for breaks. We get this time for vacation. Uh, right now, that is not actually being uh, occurring in a lot of units for a lot of uh, people in healthcare. So I think, yes, there are definitely policy changes that we can make. But right now, I just really want to at least uh, have what we've already been told we can before we really go making new changes. That's fair, Maddie. I I can empathize with that. Uh, Colleen? I think, um, yeah, I, I think let's, let's see, we have existing opportunity here. And I think let's not let the opportunity that has been a pandemic um, and the learning that we've gained be lost. So many of these issues within the health, uh, pertaining to the healthcare sector um, existed pre-pandemic. So they're, mm-hmm. they're not all new, um, but the, the light has shone on them. So I'll give you an example in terms of um, we have not had an HHR strategy and a health human resource strategy in Canada for, I can't remember how many years. It's now a, a, a conversation that's been resurrected and um, because we now have a crisis in terms of human resources, uh, which wasn't caused by the pandemic, but has been exacerbated by the pandemic and is certainly now um, uh, on the radar of of all policy um, makers and leaders. So I think there's one one thing that I think should be looked at, certainly in terms of HHR. And obviously that covers a whole lot of things, starting with how we train healthcare workers, how we um, recruit them, how we onboard them. But also retention, I think, is huge right now. Um, so policies around retention in terms of um, we know in rural areas, it's all it's been a problem for quite a long time in terms of retaining healthcare workers. But um, this is now everywhere in terms of re- retention. And so, you know, I do think that decision makers and policymakers have a role to play here and have a lever in which they can utilize to be able to put some, uh, make policy change that might um, work on retaining people for a little bit longer or, you know, making it more feasible or more attractive to stay in the profession as opposed to taking early retirement as as many have are choosing to do. Um, so that's one thing. And I, I have another that I want to just uh, bring up here. And I think uh, we've had health and safety legislation uh, for for all workplaces uh, in place for years. And that came about um, due to, um, you know, obvious need, people dying at work, people, um, you know, so now there are all kinds of safety um, um, precautions put in, in all workplaces, mandated, there is a national standard for psychological safety at work, but it's mm-hmm. voluntary. So why don't we move to making that guide mandatory? And you know, even at the bare minimum, which is to do audits on what's happening at work, or you know, to implement some things. Um, there's a whole suite of of things that could be implemented, and no one organization is going to be able to do them all. And of course, things cost money. 
but doing nothing is it should not be an option and again going back to the fact that the pandemic has given us an opportunity to learn more about these things let's not lose that opportunity let's take it in and and move forward with it and make sure that we see change happening yeah i think that's a, a powerful call colleen and um i know we've got people from the mental health commission in the audience here um and if i could see their faces i wonder if they'd be nodding uh, at your call here but um but yes i am i think the standard certainly is a is a critical lever in terms of reminding us about what we can aspire to um but what more could we be doing with that for sure um so i mean these alarm bells have been going off for um you know going on three years now i'm not sure when they started actually somebody started to ring the bell but um it certainly has been going on for a long time uh and you know a lot of people have left the profession so it does call for you know recruitment i think as you've been calling for maddie you need more people right to provide you with the time and the energies to be able to take care of yourself but i think as you've also clearly indicated colleen i mean this is this has to be a retention issue more than anything because otherwise people will continue to leave as fast as they're coming in so we have to create a space that is welcoming for all um but you know is it is it too late to fix what is happening or what has happened um you know what is going to ultimately lead us to the to i guess the solution that we're seeking um is the problem too big for any one person one organization one government to certainly invest in or is there is there a glimmer of hope that any of you would uh leave us with here in terms of where do we go next Um, I think it's, it's hard to predict the future. I think I'm generally an optimistic person. So I will always say yes, there is hope. But I think if we are going to make these changes, we have to make them soon. And we have to really dig our feet in because um, when you asked this question, the first thing that really came to me was um, right now, uh, in emergency rooms are one of the people who are really feeling uh, the most pressure with uh, what happened in COVID. Mm -hmm. And with everything that they have been going through, they barely have any retention of their workers. People come, but then they immediately leave. And the people working there have no time for themselves, no break days, no time for anything. And you see every day I see that there are job postings offering for people to come, but they just stay vacant because people either know, oh no, I don't want to go work at emergency. It's just so hectic there and I can't put myself through that. Or they think like I had a coworker who she did go to emergency, but she left after two weeks because she just told, she knew that she could not deal with that kind of uh, toxic environment and be able to continue on uh, working. So it's just, if we are going to be able to make an impact, we have to start at places like those and not only offer jobs, and but really go into those places and change the environment so that when new people do come in, they're not having that toxic environment where they're just going to be leaving again, like we were talking about before. 
Uh, we need to be able to uh, make changes and show healthcare professionals that we that our system does care and that we are willing to make changes. Because I feel at this point, a lot of people are just like, oh, I guess people think as long as we're working, then things are okay. We need to let them know that the voices are being heard and that we are willing to make those cha changes and that if they are willing to work with us, then together we can make those changes and make those places uh, like the emergency room uh, healthy environments again for people to work. Thanks, Maddie. I think that's very insightful. Um, and, and I think a strong recommendation in terms of where we can start. And I think a reminder as well that not every part of healthcare is the same and that there are parts that obviously are struggling even more um, in the places that we can start for sure. We don't have to fix the whole system perhaps at once, but we can certainly start in places where things are highly um, critical. Um, so thank you. Um, and Colleen. I don't think there's an option of giving up. I, I think we also, uh, we need to keep moving forward. Um, the question's sort of how fast, how much, what do we value? Um, I said earlier that we're all patients in the healthcare system and we're all mm -hmm. at some point in our lives going to um, require a lot more resources. And certainly we want um, healthy, caring, professional, um, capable people there when we need them. But I also want to point out that we're also contributors to our healthcare system. So we all pay taxes. Therefore, we can advocate uh, with our votes, with our voice, with our demands. I think we, as, as patients, all need to advocate for change and demonstrate that we value the system. And the very last thing I'll say is the healthcare has to be seen as what I think is a cog in this great big productivity machine that we call mm -hmm. the GDP. Mm -hmm. And it's not looked at as an economic lever, but it is because a healthcare system contributes tremendously um, to, um, to the health of our economy by making sure that we have healthier humans who can then contribute to society. So uh, I think we just have to think about it differently and not just as a, a, a place where we'll, we'll eventually go for care and it'll just be there. And um, so it's multifaceted, but uh, I think it, it needs to be looked at a little bit differently. And, and I think we all play a role. Thanks, Colleen. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more that uh, I mean, healthcare shouldn't be seen as a, um, as a, as a, as a cost right to our our, our systems or our, our budgets but their investments and in our people because right? that's where the rest of our economy and our country works so without, without healthy people we don't have anything so and without healthy healthcare workers i guess to bring it all back right we don't have a health system to take care of our people so um so final words to either of you before we wrap things up um, it's been a really in incredible conversation. Um, you've shared so much in terms of your own personal journeys and, the, and your research, Colleen. Um, I feel uh, certainly a lot wiser um, and hopeful um, that there are ways forward for us all. But uh, I will leave last words to both of you. Um, I would just like to say, again, thank you for bringing this conversation up. It's It's been a long road and it 
it can feel like it's just going nowhere at some points, but being able to talk about this, having the information like we do now, uh, physical statistics uh, that we have from this report, it gives us hope to be able to say, look, we've gone through so much, but it doesn't have to stay this way. We, we can make a change now. And I'd just like to say that for all those listening, again, you might be hearing this and thinking, oh, this person's a nurse, of course, they're going to advocate saying that healthcare workers need to uh, be appreciated for what they're doing and need more resources. But in the end, this isn't just a cry for uh, healthy healthcare workers. This is a cry for all the people who come into hospital, who come into clinic, because I can say as a healthcare worker, none of us want someone leaving at the end of the day, not receiving the best care. But there are times when we do not have the health, when we do not have the resources that just, unfortunately, we are not able to provide that. So looking at this and looking at moral distress and what we've been through in my mind isn't selfish as healthcare workers because this self-care that we're looking to do it's not just for ourselves it's also to be able to get the best care to those around us as well so i'm just hoping that the people listening out there can can know that this this applies to them too and i'm hoping that they can see the importance of that thank you maddie Dale, I don't really have anything else to add. Maddie summed it up excellent, other than to say it's been a privilege and I thank you so much for uh, this opportunity to have this conversation. Thank you, Colleen. You can be the exclamation mark here. So, um, but uh, again, my, my heart thanks you uh, both for, for giving so much of yourselves and your time to be here with us today, sharing your stories and your wisdom. And uh, yes, I do hope that together we are able to make a difference for all. So thank you. You've been listening to The HQ, and I'm Dale Sherbeck, your host. You can find this and other future episodes on the CHA Learning website, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. We'd love to hear what you think, so please follow us on our other social media channels. Thanks for joining us in this discussion today. Please join us next time.